G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device, and we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return, but we'd be grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. If you want to leave less stars, just listen to another veterinary podcast and, and give them that. Um, we really appreciate if you could spend a couple of minutes' time to do that. So back in the studio... Uh, with with Brian and myself and we're going to talk to Matt McMillan who's one of our staff physicians here in veterinary anesthesia. Um, Matt's had an extensive experience in, in anesthesia and been working at uh, uh, other institutions for, for a number of years and uh, comes with a wealth of experience but we thought we'd uh, talk to him about one of his passions which is um, patient safety and anesthesia so thank you very Matt for uh, spending the time to come and talk to us. My pleasure. So, uh, so may, may I ask that how I know you, you've maybe we should uh, plug your book, so Errors in Veterinary Anesthesia. It's a great read. I'm not Thank sure you. about the uh, um, the investigator sort of uh, um, uh, um, symbol on the front, but anyway, <coughs> maybe we can talk about about <laughs> book design at another time. <laughs> um, but uh, but it's great. It's a great book. And uh, um, so uh, so maybe I'll ask about that. How did you so how do you get into patient safety? Um, well. The first thing I, I noticed was that um, I probably shouldn't say this on air, but um, was that things kept going wrong um, in cases that I was involved at, with, and I kind of was interested in why. And uh, you know, often they'd be sick patients, and you know, the the the, the answer from you know people more senior and experienced than myself was. You know, it was sick, or it would be um, a healthier patient, and it would be well. It's just one of those things, and I was like, well, there's got to be something more to it than that. There has to be something that we can do. Um, you know, um, I'm a fine, uh, firm believer in kind of marginal gains in 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 cases where you you kind of try and do your best in every single area of an animal's care and hopefully that will give you a better outcome in the in the long run um be that managing anxiety before the patient co- even comes into the hospital through to you know the medication that you give it when it's there and the care that it gets gets when it's actually in the hospital so um i started um kind of looking into that and um obviously that led me into the patient safety kind of sphere which is all about kind of trying to make sure that um, unnecessary harm doesn't occur t- to the patients under our care. And by unnecessary harm, I mean, well, you know, if surgeons are causing harm all the time. We're causing, uh, anaesthetists are causing harm by giving drugs um, that, uh, that affect an animal's physiology and homeostasis. Um, those things are necessary for the treatment of the patient. It's just those things that aren't necessary, that aren't ideal, that happen and actually harm a patient, you know, be it, uh, you know, uh, post-operative infection or um, acute renal failure caused by non-steroidal use or whatever it is. So um, I wanted to I wanted to have a look into that and um, anaesthetists have a uh, kind of a mailing list. It's run by um, the Americans who seem much more keen to give their opinions and um, uh, kind of discuss things openly than the Europeans do. So the American uh, College of Veterinary Anesthesia has this, has this wonderful uh, mailing list where you can send in questions, etc. And one day, a uh, professor of anesthesiology from um, Cornell posted a thing about um, 
errors in anesthesia and things like that um, and I entered into a conversation with him and he said look Matt I'm thinking of writing a book in fact I have kind of drafted a book do you mind having a look at it because you've got a different set of ideas to me so I looked at it and um, did quite an exhaustive review on his book and he said look your ideas are great will you co-write it and that's how I got into writing a book um, and um, I then got involved in some other projects like the development of an anaesthetic, anaesthetic safety checklist with the Association of Veterinary Anaesthetists which went really well um, it's kind of been integrated and is recommended as part of the practice um, standard scheme by the RCVS now for preoperative um, kind of as a preoperative checklist and perioperative checklist rather um, so yeah I've just been looking at it since then um, I fully admit I'm kind of an amateur I've got no real formal training but I am well read I think ish and um, so it's something that I'm continuing to look at and trying to 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 push along with some others in in veterinary medicine so is there a, a question that you often get asked because you, you you've been speaking a lot about patient safety as well so is are, are there um common questions that you get asked by general practitioners say say with companion animals for for, for instance or, or yeah um, no, there's a there's a real mixture of things from uh, you know people wanting to discuss um, you know a case that um, you know say it was having a bitch bay and it crashed under its GA and they wanted to look at um, reasons why and so you end up having discussions about physiology and. Um, uh, kind of vagal reflexes from pulling on ovarian pedicles and things like that which um, um, which gets you into you know the scientific side of things through and kind of talking about drugs and drug choices and what you can do in those situations through to people wanting to discuss kind of how things work in their practice that they have a kind of a um, some sort of what, like a diary where they report incidents etc etc and then what they can do with them afterwards so from very very clinical individual cases through to general management of safety within practices has all all comes up it, it's, it's been very interesting and quite eye-opening and you know kind of um i think it's I, I like it because it keeps my kind of feet firmly on the ground in terms of the real world working in a kind of a referral center i think kind of takes your you know you deal with x percent one percent of patients and whereas obviously the rest of the 99 percent of patients still need to have their care performed in a safe fashion so i actually find it you know almost more satisfying than dealing with dealing with problems in a kind of a bigger um, hospital environment absolutely and so do you have i said we're always always told sort of university or going through as undergraduate you know there's no safe anesthetic agents they're just safe anaesthetists so so what in your mind is a is a safe anaesthetist i kind of would yeah i mean that, that's quite a famous quote that i had as well um i don't actually believe there's safe anaesthetists either um I, I i i think um if you take a safe anaesthetist and stick them in an unsafe environment then you know that they can't function safely either so i think it's a you know it's that you know 
the, the, to be safe, you, the system that you're working in has to be safe as well. Um, the team you have to be working in has to be safe. Um, I'm a firm believer it doesn't matter how intelligent you are or kind of how experienced you are, the equipment that you, that, that, that you have, actually it's, it, it's more about how you work within that team and um, the whether you are able to fulfill the responsibilities you have in that team effectively and communicate effectively with other people in that team, um, that makes it, you know, that makes that team successful or not, or makes the process successful or not. Could you elaborate on that in a bit more context? I suppose if we're talking about mania in general practice, I suppose quite often the um, the veterinarian would who's who's doing the surgery would probably also be the anaesthetist in ninety five percent, I imagine, of of cases. Obviously, with with help from the RVNs, absolutely. But they're probably going to be the uh, anaesthetist and the surgeon. Would you? Would you? I'd actually argue against that. Oh. Um, I, although the anaesthetist, although the veterinary surgeon in that situation is in overall control of probably what. Um, what goes into the animal and has overall responsibility i would classify the nurse as the anaesthetist and in, in the, they're the people that are making the decisions on a on a second by um second basis and are looking at things and have to interpret the data that they have and then potentially communicate it on to the to the surgeon we performed a um a survey recently um, just looking at um, general practices and who performed monitoring and who made decisions and it was you know it became quite it's, it's quite clear to me that actually the role of the nurse in anesthesia should be something that we are expanding we should be offering more training and the ability for you know potentially nurses to become advanced practitioners in anesthesia and actually be able to make some more of these decisions because it became clear that actually often they are more competent than the vets because the vet has got you know i don't think you can perform anesthesia and perform an operation at the same time i think you know anesthesia needs someone devoted to it the whole time um and the better trained you have that person the more knowledgeable um they are the more empowered they are to make decisions and to um the more they're able to um interpret the data that they got the better training that they have um uh if you know it doesn't really matter who that person whether that person's a nurse or a vet it's going to be it's going to be better for the patient so so how do we go forward with that so if you've done like a survey to say that that is is happening at the moment do they do the um do the rvns who are making those decisions feel i suppose empowered to do that or have any issues like within working within the team to make those decisions well i think there's obviously there's the the uh um I'm not going into too controversial an area, but the, you know, the, 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 there are legal constraints on what they can actually decide to do, um, and you know, and I can see there's uh, very good reasons for that. But it became clear from the survey and talking to some people that actually sometimes the nurses are actually better placed to make some of the decisions, and um, I don't think, you know, I don't think everyone should be, you know, but I, I should be able to to make decisions but i think if you can um uh, display competency in an area um you know and you you could you know it would be you know i'm a firm believer in trying to upskill people and kind of progressing the role of um nurses within all fields of veterinary medicine but in um in uh, anesthesia especially because i think it's them that do all the hands-on 
um, dirty work in a majority of, of cases if you can upskill them and make and get them to um, uh, to a position where you're happy that they are able to make decisions then I don't see why they shouldn't be allowed to do that fair enough and so I think it's just a matter of, of, of having the appropriate um, you know training systems and qualifications in place that say okay this person is an advanced practitioner in like anesthesia and therefore we allow them to do x y and z which a traditionally qualified nurse isn't able to do unless they get that qualification it's the same thing as i think i don't think having a veterinary degree should be complanche that you should be able to be able to turn your hand at anything in veterinary medicine you know there's certain there's certain procedures that i think are you know you need more training and more qualifications to be able to perform we're going beyond <laughs> I like it yeah um no no very very good very good points um so do you do you uh, do you sort of break things uh, down Matt as in so the so the the induction of anesthesia or intubation or monitoring systems and consider like the errors um involved in each of those if you're talking to someone about what can commonly go wrong or do you think it's wise to even start with that premise about what can commonly go wrong or do is there a commonality in in errors that we see in anaesthesia across the board? I'm not talking about in referral practice. Um, I think there is, but I do think there's uh, there's individual um, variation. Um, so, I mean, you know, you can go out and um, and kind of start correcting things for the common errors, but if they don't actually, if the system you're working at that error doesn't really occur, then you know you're probably wasting your time, especially if you're missing things that happen happen commonly so um you know the if you take the example of the who surgical safety checklist which was developed by um atal grandi and and, the, and um his team um at the who then um it works in some places and it doesn't work in others and the ones it doesn't work out are the places where actually all the things that the checklist is asking is already done you know, so there's been all, all the places where it hasn't been successful are probably actually very. The system is in place to support all of those things happening in the first place. Whereas in other hospitals where it's been more successful, there's probably bits of them that haven't been haven't been performed. And um, my opinion is probably the communication and the talking part of it that is the bit that maybe isn't done. You know, everyone knows their you know knows their job. We just need to get on with it. Whereas actually, there's you know there's always going to be you know m different people in the team. You know, especially in big hospitals, the, the the team on each case. We don't have these these situations where we're like, are we doing a right hip replacement? So we get the right hip replacement team in, and the you know the same anaesthetist, the same surgeon working in each other day in day out. We have situations where you know loads of different little mini teams will get together um and it's it can be difficult to to know how to communicate if you don't know that person particularly well whereas you know the checklist provides you a scaffold that everyone knows is going to be there and so they know there's a there's always going to be a time that you can kind of give your opinion on the case and say what you're worried about um I think it's important from an individual practice isn't just to go, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go out and um, 
make sure that uh, we don't miss any esophageal intubations if esophageal intubations don't happen at that particular practice because you know they've already you know they've already got the ringoscopes they've got capnography and they can actually check very rapidly and everyone knows what they're doing with those um, when actually the real problem in that practice is leaving APL valves closed so I think from a point of view of what you try and do something about is you do something about them you try and do something obviously where things are really significant and you can find a, a reason then you try and do something about them but then you do you look at the common things that happen in your practice that um, are recurrent or that the the, the 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 themes behind them and the contributing factors are the, are the same you know they don't have to be the same endpoint but all everything that happened before that is just the same in each of these in, the, in each of these incidents. So how does one work that out, Matt? How do you work out what are the common things? So I suppose most of the time things happen relatively sporadically, or you'd hope, depending on your patient population, for routine things. So is there is there a, a way that you need to keep track of what issues are occurring, and whose responsibility should that be? Um, in terms of responsibility, I think it's everyone that works in that veterinary team. I think it should be one of the, the main responsibilities of being a veterinary professional or paraprofessional. I think that is just fundamental. If you see, you know, if something goes wrong, then it should be everyone's responsibility for reporting it and for trying to make sure that it doesn't happen again. So there's a big thing in um, kind of safety, and that is discussed in terms of um, patient safety culture, which is a no-blame culture which i get asked about quite a bit it's like well there's you know i i don't actually believe in the no blame system because sometimes you know someone is to blame if they've if if, if they've done something that they knew wasn't right um and they don't have good reasons for it and their motive wasn't appropriate then actually that person should be blamed and be held accountable for for their actions however in a majority of situations people's motives were fine and and they were very very appropriate they were you know caring about the patient they just made a wrong decision or something happened that didn't go you know um as well as possible so I prefer, you know, I think words are quite important. So no blame for me is a, is a is a kind of a term which is probably not appropriate because there are going to be people that behave in an unprofessional fashion and they should be held accountable for what they did and it should go through the same disciplinary process as it would do anyway. Uh, it, it would do in a, in, in a traditional culture. But what I believe is it should, that, that, our culture should be just and that if someone clearly didn't mean to make it you know to, to make a mistake um that they their motives were good um that they, they there are circumstances and things that contributed to that thing happening which were out of their control that they then shouldn't be blamed for it that we should actually look look a little bit beyond it so back to the question of what you what should you do well the, i think the first thing to do is to just look at is is just start looking at the incidents that you have and looking at how commonly the commonly they occur. So, for me, a great place to start is just empowering your staff to report things when they go wrong. So, um, in my experience, don't start with anything like a um, 
you know, really official instant monitoring reporting system, because I think that can be quite off-putting. But I think starting in a situation where you have like a diary somewhere, you know, like um, at Cambridge um, when we were working there and we we did the first part of our research, we had a we had a pink book. We thought pink was quite a nice, non-offensive, non-threatening colour, so we got a pink book, and it was basically an instant diary. And basically everyone could had access to the diary and would write it down uh, if an incident occurs, and they could write an essay, they could write two lines, they could write whatever they wanted in the book. Um, and then we'd have a meeting once a month and we'd go through everything, and anything we felt needed further discussion and kind of investigation we'd then go on and investigate it um which worked really well and i have to say one of the, the you know when you go back and look at the incident diary now one of the things that strikes me is the first five incidents were written down by me who was the person that was running it so i think there's a certain amount of leadership and the fact that senior people are willing to lead in this as well don't expect um your student nurses to want to tell you about something that went wrong if you you know if you're not willing to talk about problems yourself the other thing that we found was that actually wasn't clear what people should be reporting you know obviously if it's a proper morbidity or mortality then it's obvious you know oh this animal got harmed or it died under anesthesia or it had a complication you know it needs to go in the book but then there's all these other cases well this one you know this one was just hypotensive for 30 minutes or because of something that happened or this one was um uh the apl valve was shut on the machine but we noticed it immediately and opened it so does that need to be reported and i think the 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 honest thing is you just report absolutely everything that could have harmed the patient because what's also what I think is really important is people don't don't lose track of the fact that actually we tend to blame the individuals and think about individuals causing problems, but they're actually the people that solve it as well. We're, we are the problem solvers. We, you know, a machine can't solve the problem. We have to be able to do it. And actually, having all these um, incidents, so um, which are often termed near misses, where the animal wasn't actually harmed and someone caught it. I actually consider as good catches so when we did the kind of rather than just have this oh this happened again this happened again etc etc what you can do is actually celebrate the successes and actually say okay well we found an APL valve closed or you know this this happened with this patient but so and so caught it really quickly so it, it didn't it, it didn't harm the patient which is great is there any way we can help other people catch this type of problem in the future as well as is there any other way that we can stop the underlying incident happening as well. So you kind of aim it from two different directions. You aim it as how you get people to do their job and to be able to react, to have this resilience in the in, in the people and the system that allows people to fix the problems. And then you have this other thing, OK, how do we stop X happening? See, I, I suppose that when you probably started, so I know that Catherine Oxby has got the, the Vet Safe program. It's probably a, a, a way that you can report incidents and, and have a look at that in a, uh, um, a independent and um, an unseen manner. So in other words, uh, you, you know, so a boss could have a look at that and not know who um, submitted that. So, so, so that would be good. I, to get onto your point of um, near misses, and also, I suppose your comment about what we talk a lot about when 
um, errors happen or near misses happen. We never, and you know, we should celebrate when near misses don't go wrong. And more positive, but in our day to day, when things actually go well, no one says what actually made that go well. What no. happened today that everything went well? That was good. We don't we don't even comment on that. We're we're quite focused. Maybe it's more about being people when things I go think, wrong. I, th- uh, I think it's just accepted that that oh things should go well. I know you know if you're doing your job properly then things will go well so therefore why do you need to get thanks for that and actually I think it's very important as a leader in a team um, you know I you know if I am running a a theatre list with a group of residents and nurses and first first of all I think it's important to empower them to be able to come to me whenever they um, need a problem or, or find a problem and that they're but that also that they're empowered to make suggestions to me on how they fix it um, and also that if they do fix something and like okay this happened I had to deal with it really quickly is that you know um, at the time you know that you actually go yeah you did a really good job that, that that's great and then um, I think we should talk about this as a team and like you know I'd, I'm not expecting you to talk about it but I'll, I'll, are you happy if I bring it up uh, as a way to, to demonstrate how well this situation was dealt with etc etc I think that's incredibly important um, there's actually a whole safety movement looking at making things go right as well as you know they're, they're, they're kind of classified as uh, safety one and safety two safety one is stopping bad things happening which is the main concentration of 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 of, um, safety research up until that point where safety two is trying to make sure good things happen and they continue to happen and to give people the tools to make the right decisions and to you know so uh, i think it's definitely a balance of of both if we go i'm just going to tell you back to kind of the the vet safe thing i think it's an absolutely brilliant idea but one thing that i have found is that if you go straight into trying to report to VetSafe, people are often quite reticent about reporting to someone external out of their team it's difficult enough within team to discuss these things let alone so i actually think it's a great thing and it should be something that people aspire to go on to doing but actually the best thing to do is to just start within your team start nice and small get people comfortable with talking about these these influence indeed these things use some of the tools because some of the tools are excellent um, that they provide but do it in-house to start off with and then once people are, are comfortable you can start setting it because I, I you know I've met you know I lectured at the London Vet Show and, and actually most of the questions were kind of how do we encourage people to report and it was just you know we use VetSafe but people aren't using it and it's you've got to break that down that barrier as to why people aren't using it and I think it just comes down to people being able you know to um, being comfortable in discussing these things and I think the first thing is that um, you know, as a as a just as a veterinary community, we need to get better at reporting when things go wrong. If you, you know, you very rarely see negative research outcomes because people don't publish them because they don't want to be seen as the guy that published the this technique that just didn't wasn't any better than the other technique or whatever. So they, it, it's just this general like you can only talk about and publicise and publish 
positives, which I don't think is very helpful. I suppose we don't know what is actually submitted to journals, and maybe actually it's more of a journal well, issue it, that it, they, they exactly. Might, um, it might not be people willing to, it, but there there is an obstruction to yeah. kind of this kind of discussion of you know, you know, when things don't go as you hope they would go, and they things are definitely happening which you know don't go as positively as as, as you want, and we should be talking about those those things more. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think any way to encourage people to, to report, and I think you're, you're absolutely right, it's, it's difficult, it's a mindset, and also people, I think, quite often only report when things go bad rather than actually um, just when, when there are near misses if people think that they've caught something, so what's necessarily the point? But the idea is to sort of stop it happening again because apart from your book in um, of, of Errors in Veterinary Anesthesia, the only other book that I can think of that talks about um, uh, errors, in fact, there's a there's a surgical complications book that was written recently in, for veterinary terms, but before that was like an M&Ms for ECC for the group out of, mm. of Tufts that, mm. that talk about, yeah. you know, just cases and, and uh, an individual sort of learning thing from 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 those, you know, it's almost like a, a portfolio of, of when things go, go wrong. And I suppose that normally in that experience team, you have someone that might be able to, to help with that, or oh, I've done that, or oh, I've seen that happen before. And this is why you, you shouldn't do that. But it's, you know, you, we can stand on the shoulder of giants and learn from, from things that happened before. But you're absolutely right. The, the, the things that are quite individual, we're going to be focused on your, um, uh, in your team might be very unique you know in your in your environment the patient population that you see can be can be quite unique and so throw up different challenges that you know we mm. wouldn't have necessarily um experienced and also to touch on your other point about uh, a just culture i believe um catherine oxby's got a, a phd student looking in a veterinary mm. just culture at the at the moment so uh, so that's um a massive uh, project I'd imagine yes. about what that is um, yeah. uh, about that and I and I, I think and again I suppose we shouldn't we should probably just clarify a bit that what we're referring to is like no one goes to work to think you know what I'm going to make a mistake today you know like <laughs> everyone you know we understand every the pressures everyone's under vets and nurses regardless and so when you're actually talking about people that um, intentionally cause harm. We're talking about the Harold Shipmans of the world. Like there, there's very, f- you know, it's a very few cases. But, but, but yes, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. so I'm just trying to encourage people to. <laughs> yeah. People aren't, yeah. like, you know, don't Absolutely. don't do what they they, they did in in a deliberate fashion. They didn't deliberately yeah. give like a 10 times overdose of methadone it was a you know it was a calculation error or it was a communication mistake you know i you know some people work in milligrams some people work in mils you know it, when the drug is 10 megs per mil you know and you go can i you give it 10 mils of this drug then if it ends up as 10 mils then you know and it should have been ten megs. It's going to be a, it's going to be a problem. But that person didn't deliberately try and do it. So, kind of reprimanding them if, for, for for doing that, I think, is is totally unnecessary. Now, obviously, they need to be held accountable um, for trying to make sure it never happens again. Um, so they need to do their part. You know, if if it does turn out that there was a problem, you know, they had a problem with working something out or something, then you need to go. Okay, well, you know, that, that, let's try and find a way that this. It, that suits you that means this this doesn't happen again um but no one you know will 
will do it deliberately or because you know or, um, because they don't care and actually the motive of what you do I, I think that's really important in, in general things it's like when you make a decision or do an action you know um, then the motive behind it or the reasoning behind it is actually very very important in terms of of transposing that into another situation as well so for example if you've got a hypertensive patient under anesthesia and um, you give a bolus of fluids and it works okay it doesn't necessarily mean that the next hypertensive patient that you have under anesthesia it's appropriate to give fluids to you know the, the first patient you know you you've given it to because you think it's hypovolemic but it doesn't mean the next patient is going to be hypovolemic or is going to respond to fluids you need to have the reasoning has to be there for the that individual decision that you make and it should be right and actually you know you, there's lots of decisions you can only you can, can day by day by day you can get through making decisions but actually your reasoning wasn't wasn't correct but it works in 99% of cases but then there's like one case where that reasoning suddenly shows its ugly head and actually wasn't correct and you do it and that harms a patient and then you go oh you know still that was just one of those things but actually there was you know when you go back and look at the all the decisions you've made about doing that thing you know what my reasoning wasn't right this was the actual reasoning why this treatment worked and this was the reason why this treatment didn't work in this patient do you do you think we actually understand the problem and and even in anesthesia terms of errors do you think we have got a good grasp on on where the errors occur in in general no not at all i don't you know um Anesthesia, well, in medicine in general, is is so complex now. You know, you take the complexity of an animal's physiology, which we you know, we simplify to make it understandable. We simplify, you know, X and Y happens, and then this is the body's response, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we generally take like the cardiovascular system out of the out of the patient and go, this is how the cardiovascular system will respond, etc, etc, and then we add in the complexity of all the drugs we add in and the diseases and then the procedures and then the individual kind of you know, the ways we can monitor and the kind of the inaccuracies of our monitoring techniques and the, the fact that you know, our, you know uh, the information we have may be incomplete you know it may be unreliable um, then we've got to interpret all that information and then we've got to make a decision which in terms of you know uh, um, depend on all sorts of external and internal factors that I don't think we have we're even a, 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 you know I think it's like saying, do we have an understanding of what it's like to be human? <laughs> Personally, you know, it's like, um, and we're never going to, you know, uh, I mean, in terms of anaesthesia, um, the the more questions you ask, the um, the more kind of, you know, and the more answers you get, the more questions then lead on from that. I mean, we don't even know the, the you know, the, the key question in anaesthesia is well, why does anaesthesia happen? Why, you know, and well, to ex explain that, you've got to explain why consciousness happens, and we, we really don't have a clue there. Loads of different theories, but it's such a complex thing. It's magic. It's 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 it is magic. 
Um, can I ask, I suppose, I suppose we've got to think about um, maybe giving some take-home messages at some point, but um, what I was uh, interested in is you spoke about checklists and you, uh, developing a checklist, checklist which you've done. Um, great, great work. That's, uh, that sounds very a very positive thing to do. But saying what you said about um, the, the checklist manifesto and, and work done with the WHO and things not working necessarily in certain institutions or place, what, what are your thoughts about how people should use that checklist if, if they want to do you think everyone should or do you think only a certain group of people should or what is the framework how you would say you should use a checklist um well the first thing that i, do, that I think is really important is that the the, the 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 group that developed the um it was a safe surgery saved lives group they developed the checklist but you know they quite clearly in, in all of their literature, state that this may need some adaptation to be to be to work and to be effective at a local um, in in local uh, situations. Um, so I think it's absolutely fine to take a checklist, a generic checklist, the AVA checklist or the or the WHO one, and try and integrate that into your workflow because I don't think it takes a lot of effort. I don't really think is, you know, generally my experience is it takes one or, you know, adds one or two minutes. And quite a lot of the, you know, you know, in a good proportion of cases, it will then save you a lot of time in the long run because you've already communicated certain things. Um, but the fact is it's not going to suit every, it's not going to suit everywhere and workflow may differ. And it doesn't mean that that workflow is necessarily wrong. It just means it's different in that particular institute for a number of reasons. So there may be things that you need to add in. There may be particular think problems in that places that actually, you know what, we should talk about this during our, during our checklist. I mean, the AVA one we developed was literally just anesthesia. We discussed about doing these additional things, but then felt, you know, Actually, let's just do the anaesthesia one, and then we can move on and hopefully kind of collaborate with the surgeons to add in things like IV antibiotics and have all the you know sharps been accounted for, or the, is there been a swab count performed? You know, or, you know, all that type of thing could be added in at a later date. Um, so it's really just a, a, a base, and you know, was the basis. These are the things that we think should be performed in every anaesthetic at each stage and then you can add to it various other things that, 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 that you want and the, the most common problem I see with 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 checklists is just you know it, it is a lack of engagement with it it just becomes a box ticking exercise oh I, you know tick 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 I've got to you've got to I've, I've got to tick these things if I don't tick them I get told off you know that type of thing it's another rule and becomes a you know almost an obstruction to workflow in some situations and I'm not taking this case to theatre because I don't have x you know I don't know I don't know whether it needs antibiotics or not well you know if if there's a patient in front of you that's really painful and um, is suffering, then actually I would rather anaesthetise it and find out about antibiotics before I got it into theatre than make sure before I started the case. Um, um, so there's I think there's a um, I think the, the 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 key in the in the checklist is the communication and the bringing people together as a team, and it's the empowerment of getting various individuals within that team. I actually think particularly the nurses able to 
speak up and to actually say oh, again you know xyz to make sure that everything is as each member of the team wants it to be and if they've got any concerns then they actually are able to feel free to state those concerns and actually once you get that process in then it becomes easier throughout th throughout the rest of the animal's care to actually go oh, you know i wasn't happy about x or i wasn't happy about y etc etc do, do you think there's some uh, sort of slight differences because i mentioned still a number of vet practices are, are, are quite small as in the number of teams are quite small and that's probably very different from uh, and uh, hospitals where anesthesia teams are probably quite large and quite mm. different and they already have like set uh, ideas for the you know storming forming idea about um, about like teamwork in in general so you have set roles that people do and they kind of know what they're meant to do do you think that might inhibit people from speaking up in that situation with a checklist because they they work with them too closely do you think we need a a, a, a different approach potentially um i certainly don't think the, the checklist is sort of the be all and end all of of, of, of of safety and they're just a very uh, small tool that you can use to try and make sure that things get get done um i mean uh, hopefully the hopefully the the checklists that have been developed to date have actually concentrated on things that should be relevant for everyone mm -hmm. um and then you add in the individual points i mean we took out you know when i, I was working in a small team we took out the introducing yourself bit and we would only basically ask is there any visitors to theatre or any new members to the team and we'd get them to introduce themselves rather than getting everyone to you know because you know if you're working in a, a theatre where you have four surgeons and they're on most of the time and the nursing team's the same and the anaesthesia team's the same then um, that's it's probably not relevant but then when you've got visitors in it's probably relevant to know who they are and what they're able to do or what their role is or what their role is you know <laughs> i'm you know this person is here to observe only this person is a hands-on visitor you know you know it, it'll be embarrassing if you know <laughs> it, it, this person you know is um an expert in cpr yeah. and you don't realize it and then you run your cpr without then this person is kind of like well I, you know, it's a little bit. Um, so you know, we we you know we, we took various things out. I mean, we were using a modification of the safe surgery checklist before we developed the AVA checklist. And the reason I wasn't happy with the AVA checklist is because the whole anaesthesia bit was one box, has all your equipment and drugs been checked, and it was like it, yeah. Uh, it was kind of like, okay, I think we need to do something a little bit more. Um, we need to make sure that people are checking the machine in the same way. We need to make, you know, and, and that things aren't missed there. And um, But I do think you can go too far and have, you have too, I think the, it shouldn't, it should be an aid to thinking and making decisions and to provide a scaffold and something to fall back on, but it shouldn't, but basically shouldn't replace it. If you look at how, you know, pilots work, they often have done, you know, you can do a checklist and it is, uh, okay, uh, you need to check this and you go away and check it and then you come back and then, or you can just do, do the checklist, which is, okay, 
have we checked this? Yes. Have we checked this? Yes. Have we checked this? We've checked everything. So when you look at them in a crisis, they've often done most of the things on the checklist before the checklist has been asked, but they still ask the checklist. And the idea is that they pick up something that maybe hasn't been done rather than making sure that everything has been done, if that makes sense. I thought we were going to go through a whole uh, conversation without talking about pilots and and patients. No, I mean, um, it's an important thing, and and there's quite a lot of nice, you know, um, kind of what it should do is free the individual up to think about the really important things that require what we as humans are really good at, which is problem solving, not just remembering stuff so you should be able to free your brain up from just remembering every single little thing to just going okay this is the problem that i'm currently how am i going to fix that and i think that's quite an important thing because it doesn't take away your clinical freedom or anything what it does is make sure the things that should be done in every case you know you know i don't see that i don't think there's any argument that you should check that your patient's the right patient and that you know what procedure you're doing on a patient and what leg you're doing the TPLO on. I don't think there's any argument that that should be, you know, it should be clear to absolutely every single person in the team. It may be in the surgeon's head, but if the nurse doesn't know, she doesn't know what leg to clip or we don't know what block to to perform as an ethetist or whatever. Um, but so it, it, it's not about restricting those what you're able to do. I mean, you can, you know, if you use it as a, okay, just before we get on to the next stage of this procedure, has everything been done that needs to be done in the first stage of the procedure? Then you can do whatever, whatever order. I can check my machine first, and then I can draw my drugs up. I can draw my drugs up and check my machine. You know, I can put the IV in at the end, at the beginning. Or, you know, I can do it in whatever order. But when it comes to moving on to the next step, which is induction of anesthesia, have all those things been done? I still will get my clinical freedom about what drugs I give. You know, what anaesthetic machine breathing system I use. It's just has that been checked properly. Do you, do you think there'd be a role in um, anaesthetic emergencies to have a checklist, or do you think that would be quite helpful well yeah i i do because actually i think a lot of people know quite a lot but then when it comes to the heat of the moment they don't remember it Mm. um can i plug my second book (laughs) you've got another book coming i didn't even know this (laughs) so at the moment um i'm in uh negotiations with the bsava to produce an anaesthetic crisis or basically an anaesthesia cognitive aid manual that basically will have crisis situations in it that won't it's it's not algorithms it's important to recommend that they're not kind of treatment algorithms for treating everything they're just there as okay have you thought of this have you thought of that have you thought of that these are the common things that cause it these can be the causes um these are what you treat those different things this is a way you can identify whether that's the cause or not so rather than just have a huge block of text that basically you will go to a section on hypotension and there will be okay this is what we define hypotension as you know and give them different kind of definitions of a, a, a general consensus because no one can really agree on these things um you know and this is what you should do when you're dealing with it these are the you know these are the things that are worth checking at any any point in time so um there'll be a general okay something bad happens doesn't matter what it is these are the checklists you go through your abcs or whatever um but the important thing to recognize is that if you take a pulse 
and there's no pulse is you don't go on to the next thing in the checklist you sort that problem out and you start cpr so you know you you don't go okay well now i'm going to check that there's oxygen in the cylinders and i'm going to check that so that is hopefully on its way and be a safety bookshop near you soon wow but so that seems that, exciting. That's the, so the idea will uh, that it will be a very small, like it's it will be in the same series as the um, really nice uh, X-ray. Have you seen the X-ray manual they've got? They've got a really nice flip flip book. So it'll just be ring bound uh, flip book. Hopefully there'll be some sort of um, online resource as well. So you can, you know, if you buy the book, then you're able to download the the pdfs and your stuff. phone number no i'm joking <laughs> um so um what 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 do you think that in a veterinary anesthesia term in regard to patient safety are the the things that we need to work on like the you know two or three things that you think we need to work on like now and also where do you where do you see this sort of going in the in the future i think the most important thing is we recognize that it is an issue and that however um, safe or good your practice is that there it won't be perfect and there's always things you you can improve and if you stop looking at problems and you stop identifying when things aren't working quite right or when things don't work um, as as you planned and you stop trying to work out why then you're never you're not going to complete you're not going to move forward and you are going to you know your your limitations will start holding you back from becoming better and i think if you rest on your laurels and you think oh we're so and so um we've got a really good reputation we don't need to do anything about it then you're going to start running into trouble when other practices that do do something about it can will will start to overtake and accelerate and will become you know well if it, if you did oh so and so's got an absolutely brilliant team but you know we keep seeing complications so we're going to send it here because everything that gets done and there gets done seems to get done well and safely and we never have any complaints then you know it doesn't matter how good your individuals are if you're the system and everything isn't in place to support them then you will start to fall behind so my the most important thing is that we recognize that it is a problem that everywhere has that nowhere is perfect that there is we got to have this gold standard there is no gold standard because gold standard shifts you know all the time and if we want to keep up with trying to do the best we can we need to recognize when things go wrong and how things go wrong and we need to recognize and see okay how things go right and why why we're successful and just taking for granted that we're successful because we're great is 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 not going to get us anywhere and and so the most important thing for me is that we actually start looking at this stuff and that we actually start to think about it and we recognize it as a as a potential problem that is going to is going to stop our progression um and it's something that can happen in everywhere i mean you know we're looking at i think you can improve safety and you can be safe uh, within your constraints in your environment whether you're working in a one-man practice that does two or three operations a week and and works in a uh, you know uh, an area a socio-economic area that isn't particularly well off or in a charity or in you know um or in a kind of a 
top of the range referral practice i think that everywhere can be you know can be safe within their working environment and working um, system or actually not everywhere can be safe but everywhere can work towards being as safe as they possibly can be because i'm not sure that the idea of zero harm or zero errors or anything is particularly helpful because you know we're people and things are going to happen but what's important is that actually we strive towards making it as minimal as possible and that things don't repeat themselves and the same problem happens again and again and again. So obviously, yeah, apart from working on your, your book sales in the in the future, what are you going to, uh, what, what are you actually going to look into yourself? Well, you've got a few um, areas. Oh, I've got my your... arena tour as well. Your arena tour? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> check, out, check out that. Um, but what, what are you, actually, what are you uh, specifically going to look into, Matt? Um, well... I mean, there's a few things I'm 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 really interested in. Um, obviously, I'm going to continue on the safe, patient safety kind of side of things. Um, and uh, one of the investigations I'd like to look at is clinical reasoning and um, what are the reasons behind some of the decisions that we make, um, and um, kind of the biases and the things that influence us and the kind of the shortcuts we take because i mean i'm sure you you know it's a similar situation when you're dealing with emergency as as um in an anesthesia so i'm sure you reckon that sometimes you've just got to make a decision with the limited information you have and you've got to take a best bet sit you know situation we don't have time to sit down as a group and discuss everything and have rounds and then because the patient will, will be dead so inevitably if you're making these fast decisions there's things that influence it there's the, you know you, um, and you're going to look for things that confirm your initial hunch or that your gut feeling and um, it's it's how in, in different individuals that that happens so i'm quite i'm quite interested in that side of things um i'm really interested in sustainability i think it's a really important thing i don't think the way veterinary medicine works right now is necessarily sustainable in the in, in the in the long run um in terms of anesthesia our use of anesthetic gases etc etc i think are things that we're going to have to look at quite strongly so i'm interested in just looking at ways that we can reduce that um I'm very interested in ethics and about what we do and you know which kind of um I've always been interested in ethics but it's kind of stemmed from the just looking at some of the complicated stuff that we do and you know making the right decisions about you know whether this case is suitable for this procedure or whatever you know um and and that side of things which uh, again comes down to the way you communicate with owners and the way you communicate with team uh, the rest of your team with you know me communicating with surgeons etc etc and so interpersonal relationships which is all and kind of you know it's not directly but it kind of indirectly mixed in with the whole kind of safety stuff um i'm hoping to kind of develop some resources um to kind of give some um practical aids to help people investigate some of this stuff in practice um and to um 
kind of so they can look at you know their clinical governance and clinical audit and not just think of it as something they have to do for the RCVS but looking at something they can do to both improve care for their patients but also improve their work environment and make sure that that they provide an environment that and the training and the support that means their staff can do their best in their work um, so they can do the best possible job that it is so I'd like to do um, uh, some of that and um, well I think that's more than enough to keep me busy for uh, quite a few years so um, I'll stick with that for the moment. Fair enough and I suppose we were talking so maybe we should uh, maybe have another uh, chat if you're if you're uh, if you're willing or welcome to talk about auditing because I suppose that we, we did mention when the mics were closed before about some of the problems with investigating in general as people come up with a rule and that rule might only be fitting for that situation and then you've you create more barriers and, and issues associated with that so maybe actually we'd maybe we should have a a separate conversation specifically on on that because it's in as you said it's in our nature to problem solve and it's in our nature to work out how to stop one thing happening but is that actually going to work mm. No, I, I think that's actually the, the 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 biggest thing. When when you see people, they can in, you know investigate a problem. They often investigate it to a level where they can um, set a new rule or a new protocol. Well, we've got a new practice policy, or we will, you know, the, oh, this is the point where the it went wrong. X, X didn't happen. Therefore, we need to send an email out about. X never happening again and that everyone needs to do this there is a SOP for this that you have to do um, uh, for every case and it forgets that actually there was a whole bunch of other contributing factors for, for that happening that it doesn't take into account that there were extenuating circumstances for that particular issue happening and if you just you know sometimes if you, you it's that failure to see it from it's very easy from a management position um to look down and go okay well that should have happened therefore we set a rule but what it doesn't do is look at the people on the floor and actually look at what were the obstructions for that happening properly in the first place rather than just going well that has to happen so i do think that's a you know that's a that's a pretty big um, pretty big topic as you were commenting before it's more like uh, understanding the problem yeah rather than just fixing an issue or a small part of that and and maybe that's where hopefully um i think with individuals maybe um think about like in particularly in the uk with lcf standards and, and clinical auditing that people are more interested in auditing in general and maybe information coming out from the the vds and catherine oxaby's group might might help us actually understand what exactly. the problem is and then think about solutions after that to fix it but probably very similar to the checklist those you know solutions or um behaviors that can maybe be be changed might be specific and contextual to mm. the clinical environment and the teams that people are working in and you know you can it, it it's the same thing as the, you know if you know a checklist will only work if you um use it in an appropriate fashion and you and you do the same thing with um with with an audit if you're doing a clinical audit or you're just looking at an audit um of of, of what you do in your practice if you don't perform that audit in an appropriate fashion and you don't you know 
you could say say you've got um the nurse comes to you and says um i think we've had quite a few rabbit anesthetic deaths recently and you go back and you look at your last 100 deaths and you work out there's five five of those rabbits have 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 died um and so you go, okay, well, we need to change our anaesthetic protocol. So you change the anaesthetic protocol and tell everyone you're looking at um, rabbit fatalities and you're going to change the protocol. And you do 50 cases and no rabbits die. And you think, oh, well, that's a success. Well, you know, there, there's a number of, you know, it may well have been the anaesthetic protocol that you've changed that has made the difference. But you really don't know. It could be just that you've told people that you're looking at it and they're being more careful. You know, they've suddenly started looking at these things and they go, oh, you know what, my rabbit was cold and I'm, you know, I've started to warm it up. Um, or that I'm going to do my surgery a little bit quicker now and, and not take quite so long because I know we're looking at rabbit fatalities. And um, it may be just that those 50 rabbits were, you know, lucky that there was other risk factors involved and you just haven't had it. I mean, the, 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 the study's going to be going to be underpowered, you know, you know, although I don't think you need to know huge amounts of st uh, about statistics and um, uh, kind of scientific methodology to be able to perform a clinical audit, I do think you need to have a basic understanding of what limitations that your audit actually has. Um, and you need to be able to d decide whether the thing that you instigated made a actually did was the thing that makes makes the difference or whether it was just some other random factor and you also need to continue to look you know because if if you know it may be that in six months time a year's time that you have the same fatality rate with even though you've changed that protocol so i think it's quite important that you have that so you don't get oh you need to do a clinical audit and this is one you can start at etc 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 that you actually think about you know you, you get people have training about you know, not only that, that they don't just randomly choose, oh, it's the anaesthetic protocol, because that's what we always think. It's always, it's always going to be the anaesthetic drugs that are to blame. So we'll blame the anaesthetic drugs. Therefore, if we change them and things get better, then it's, you know, it's hugely positive. And it's and it may be nothing to do with that at all. Um, actually, most of the time, the drugs we have available now are absolutely fantastic, you know, and there's multiple different ways we can anaesthetise different patients successfully so it's unlikely that one single drug combination is going to be hugely better it's likely to be an aggregation of lots of things including you know various other decisions that you make around that case that are going to be more important well thank you very much Matt I think we'll probably we'll put a pause on it there because I think we'll, we should um, I think we should let's cover audit separately maybe maybe actually when uh, when your when your manual gets uh, gets published we can you know use that as a plug <laughs> in, in between your arena yeah. tour and uh, and and, uh, and that maybe you could find time in your schedule to yeah. come back and we can we can have a have a chat about that um, but but um, but thank you very much for your time today. Uh, today, so we'll, we'll wrap it up there. And um, thanks again for for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit race device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. So if you could leave us a, a review, five star review would be great uh, on Apple Podcast or Acast, wherever you get your podcast. Please don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or any other friends. Um, we're we're pretty open about having anyone listen to us. So we'll place some show notes on the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice it should be top of the tree so if you have any comments or suggestions please get in touch you can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at don barfield until next time 
Bye-bye.